What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer, and you have just stepped inside my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevant gaming related decree. This week, it's all about Konami and Sony and will they or won't they? So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode with my news catch of the week. Gamers, this past week there was yet again a rumor brought out into the forefront of the gaming spotlight, if you will. Speaking to the fact that there is a good possibility that Sony and Konami are going to very soon announce some kind of exclusivity deal. Some speculating that Sony will buy Konami and they will forever be a Sony-only developer. Or that Sony has worked out some kind of special deal or agreement with Konami with upcoming games, whether it's exclusivity, timed exclusivity, exclusive content like DLC and whatnot coming in the future post-game launch. We don't know, but the rumor is very, very much there. And it's not the first time that this rumor has popped up. I would say out of all of the gaming rumors that kind of float around the internet on a given day, this one is one that I constantly see repopulate and kind of gain increased traction at, I would say, every few months or so. So most recently, it's come back into the forefront of the gaming conversation. And I think that a part of it has to do with the fact that we're going very quickly into the month of June, and it's very much pretty much a guarantee that Sony is going to have a big showcase event as they typically do around this time every year. And at this point, they always do major announcements and game reveals and things like that. So of course, speculation is running rampant. Oh, they're going to announce that they have an exclusive deal with Konami or they're going to buy Konami. Well, I am here this week to discuss this topic and kind of give you my opinion and my two cents on everything. But first, I want to talk about the relationship between Konami and Sony over the years. And it's been a very good one. If you look back, I mean, all the way back to the original PlayStation, Sony and Konami have had a very good connection. You look at Castlevania Symphony of the Night, a series that was always 100% a Nintendo-exclusive franchise from Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Game Boy. I mean, it was always a Nintendo-only console experience. And so you get to Symphony of the Night on the PlayStation, and that game is lauded as one of the greatest of that generation and in the series of Castlevania as a whole for good reason. I personally played and loved the game. One of the biggest twists in all of gaming from back in that era was the fact that you think you beat it, you play all the way through the game, get to the end of the castle, you fight Dracula, yeah, I beat the game. Actually, no, you didn't. Now you get to play through the castle in reverse. So you got to go backwards and everything is reversed, and it was actually pretty cool and crazy at the time. And you go through it a second time, and then you can beat the game. So it's starting with Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and then looking at their connection throughout the course of the PlayStation 1 generation. It wasn't just Castlevania. We look at series like one of my favorites, Silent Hill. Silent Hill started on the PlayStation 1, and that was an exclusive PlayStation franchise through PlayStation 1 into PlayStation 2 with the second game initially, as well as Silent Hill 3. And then we go into Silent Hill 4 being released on the Xbox, as well as a HD remaster collection that also released on Xbox. 
and the subsequent titles down the line would eventually all come to other consoles. But it started out as a PlayStation-exclusive series. Then we shift and we look at the Metal Gear Solid series. It has also always predominantly been a PlayStation-exclusive franchise. Metal Gear Solid started out on PlayStation 1. Again, you may be able to sit there and argue and say, well, Metal Gear as a series and the Snake character, Big Boss character, all that really started as a Nintendo exclusive because the originals were on the original Nintendo. Sure, but the series didn't really garner any kind of recognition until that first game of Metal Gear Solid on the PlayStation 1. So we look at PlayStation 1 had Metal Gear Solid. PlayStation 2 had Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3. And then, yes, we did get the HD collection, just like for Silent Hill. We got that same treatment for Metal Gear on the original Xbox. And you can play those games on an Xbox platform. But when we looked at Metal Gear Solid 4, Kojima and Konami decided to only release it on the PlayStation 3. And then we look at Metal Gear Solid 5. Of course, it was a multi-platform release. But my point is, out of those five major numbered games, you predominantly are looking at a PlayStation console. The PSP games, those are exclusive, again, to the PlayStation brand. So ultimately, you look at these three different franchises, right? Castlevania, Silent Hill, and Metal Gear Solid. And these are the three franchises that are also being brought up with this rumor of these potential big announcements coming from Sony's upcoming showcase event. Now, I am absolutely a fan and love all three of these franchises. I mean, exponentially. Obviously, if you know me, you listen to the show, you know Silent Hill is my favorite franchise out of these three. I just absolutely love it. And if you want to check out the details of my thoughts on Silent Hill's transmission showcase event that Konami did back at the fall of last year, check out that episode. It's right here on this channel. And I don't want to go into a whole lot of details of what potentially they could do with Silent Hill exclusively in this specific episode or topic discussion because they've already announced that Silent Hill 2 is exclusive to the PS5, which I'm very excited about because I feel like they'll be able to take full advantage of the PS5, the haptic feedback and adaptive triggers of the dual sense, so on and so forth. So I'm very excited about that exclusivity. Whether or not we have any other exclusive reveals coming for that franchise, I'm not sure. But when you look at Castlevania and Metal Gear Solid, let's first talk about the fact is, are these games or franchises, will they be announced as and then continue to remain exclusives to a PlayStation console? Do I think that is the case? And how do I feel about that? Well, first, do I think that's going to be the case? I honestly, I don't know. It really wouldn't surprise me at this point because there is a lot of developers really kind of focusing on PlayStation content and developed games because Game Pass is kind of now at this point scaring developers away, it would seem, away from the Xbox brand due to low software sales across the board. It seems a lot of gamers on Xbox are content to just wait until a game comes to Game Pass instead of actually purchasing or paying outright for an individual game. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but there is you know, truth in numbers and statistics, and they're all there when it comes to the specifics of sales on the Xbox platform. So I think that obviously from a business standpoint, if you're Konami, you're going to want obviously as many sales as you possibly can get. And when you look at a console like PS5 that has almost twice the amount of sales as the Xbox Series brand, and the fact that they actually, their gamers will buy their games, that's, that's a big decision maker right there or deal breaker in my opinion. So will they become exclusive or all 
Castlevania and Silent Hill and Metal Gear Solid games be exclusive in the future? I'm not sure, but I could see it happening. Also, do I see them buying, Sony buying Konami outright and just saying, boom, we own Konami? Honestly, I could see that happening too. I know Konami is a very proud company, but I do know that they stepped away from the video game scene for quite a few years to focus on slot machines and gambling and, and things like that. And they have just now started to come back into the video game fray of things with the Silent Hill showcase and transmission from last year being the first big thing they've done in a while. I would say after they released Metal Gear Solid 5, they kind of went into hibernation a bit. I mean, you'd have some Castlevania things here or there, maybe some remasters, but nothing major and nothing big in their big franchises. These big three, we'll call them. So do I see it as a possibility that Sony could buy Konami? Yeah, I, I do, because Konami may be looking for a dedicated partner to help fund some of these franchises and, and the different reveals and uh, continued franchise entries in these series. So I definitely see it as a good possibility. How do I feel about that? Well, I am honestly perfectly okay with it. When I think of certain developers, some of them I think that they make more sense as an Xbox-owned brand. Others, I think that they make more sense as a Sony-owned brand. Well, when I think of Konami, even somebody like Capcom, I feel they are kind of synonymous with PlayStation and that branding. And I feel like they just kind of go together so well, peanut butter and jelly-ish, if you will. So for me, I would not be upset about Konami being fully owned by PlayStation because I also feel that PlayStation, even if they own them, they would just kind of let them do their thing. Hey, we trust you. You do your thing. We're here to help support you financially in any other way possible. Just crank out good games. That's all we're asking of you. To our standard of a PlayStation first-party title, that's all we ask of you is to meet that level of standard. And Konami in the past has shown that they can do that. So what kind of games do I want Konami to do? Well, the rumors right now are the fact that Metal Gear Solid 3 and or maybe Metal Gear Solid 1 is getting a, re a remake, not a remaster, but a complete remake again, which I'm perfectly okay with either of those getting remade. I would love to replay either of both of those and current gen technology. I just think it would be amazing playing through Snake Eater and doing all the different things that you could do in that game. Even the first game, Metal Gear Solid 1 and playing on Shadow Moses and just... Uh, just the different iconic boss fights and just so many different things that would be amazing in today's technological prowess. Now, as far as Castlevania, I don't necessarily want remakes of any of the older games, but I would love a brand new game in the style of kind of like a God of War. The way the new God of War games are with the 2018 reboot and then the 2022 Ragnarok, if that style of gameplay is implemented into the Castlevania universe, which would be very ironic to me, because the Castlevania games, Lords of Shadow and Lords of Shadow 2, when those came out back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, those games were very much mirrored after the style of gameplay of God of War at that time. That era's God of War style of gameplay was what the inspiration was for those Castlevania titles. I personally never played through Lords of Shadow 2, even though I absolutely loved Lords of Shadow 1. It was just amazing. The story, the graphics, the gameplay, loved it. So if they did the same kind of situation here where it's like, oh, okay, well, this is the new style of God of War. This is what we want our Castlevania game to feel like and to play like. And the Metroidvania, obviously, the Vania, and that being from Castlevania, that style of gameplay just lends itself perfectly to update all the gameplay styles 
kind of the same kind of approach that God of War 2018 and Ragnarok took. So I would love to see that, a brand new Castlevania game. Simon Belmont, Alucard, like it doesn't matter to me who the characters are. I would just love to see a great, solid Castlevania game in that most recently updated current-gen style of God of War. Now, Silent Hill, we already got so many announcements of at least four games that are coming in the future, all varying different types of genres and subgenres and approaches to the gameplay. Silent Hill 2 being a remake of that original game release on PS2. Can't wait for that. Uh, absolutely just going to lose myself to that game. And if it's on that same level as the Resident Evil remakes have been, whoo boy, I uh, it is just going to be an amazing time and I can't wait. Unfortunately, it was one that got away from me back in the day. I'd never completed the second Silent Hill. So it is one of the only two mainline entries that I never beat. Two and three were the only two Silent Hills that I never beat. Every other one I've beaten, love them to varying degrees. But man, I, I can't wait to get my hands on a controller for Silent Hill 2. So I won't say too much again about that because if you want my detailed thoughts on what the other games are supposed to be, then you can check out that episode. But when we look at Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid is also one of my favorite franchises ever. Solid Snake is one of my favorite characters. By the time I got through Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater and then especially Metal Gear 5 The Phantom Pain, Big Boss was right up there with Solid Snake for me. I was very disappointed to not be playing Solid Snake in 2 and Sons of Liberty, but I wasn't very interested either in Big Boss going into Snake Eater. Once I got my hands on that game, though, oh man, that opinion changed. And then especially seeing him even more fleshed out in the Phantom Pain, I, I love Big Boss. So whether it's a prequel to Metal Gear Solid 1, a remake of Metal Gear Solid 1 or 2, it doesn't matter to me because, again, the second game got away from me there in that series, Metal Gear 2. So I would love to have a second opportunity to play through it. Same thing with Metal Gear 4. I don't think that we're going to see a remake of that anytime soon because it's somewhat more recent being a PS3 release. Plus, I feel like the fan base would be more interested in either one or three being remade before we see any kind of four remake. But you never know. If they remake the first game or even Snake Eater and it's successful, they could just follow suit like Capcom and keep doing those remakes, and I think that would be amazing. I'd replay all of them again, to be honest with you. So when we look at Metal Gear Solid, I mean, that was that first game was one of the first games I ever played on my PlayStation that I owned, and it was on the PlayStation demo disc that came from Pizza Hut that year. And I remember renting it from Blockbuster, that Christmas break from school, and just absolutely falling in love with it. I credit Metal Gear Solid and Hideo Kojima as changing my outlook on video games and the way that storytelling can be done in video games and accentuating my love for gaming in general. I'd always been a gamer and loved gaming up to that point, but that was a culture shift for me playing Metal Gear Solid, and I have always appreciated that and that series and I would love to see either of the remakes, but I'd also love to see a new game. Again, whether it's a prequel or if it's a sequel to Metal Gear Solid 5, however they decide to do it, my only concern would be with original content without Hideo Kojima, who is the mastermind of all of Metal Gear. <laughs> the story, the characters, everything, how it all ties together and fits in. I'll be a little bit concerned how that would end up shaping up if they would be able to be on that same level as Hideo Kojima unless they got some kind of contact with him and maybe he was able to give them some pointers or some bullet points of where he wanted to go with characters or what his plans were or thoughts and what happened in Solid Snake's career and Big Boss before some of the games. 
I don't know. But either way, any of those options I will be down for. Prequel, sequel, remakes, it doesn't matter. So I cannot wait to try out any of these games, to be honest with you. The only thing that I want to talk about lastly here is when we talk about console exclusivity, there's been some comparison online about the exclusivity if Sony were to buy Konami compared to Xbox buying Bethesda and uh, Activision Blizzard. Now, the thing is here, the clarification needed is it is massively different because Bethesda was and Activision Blizzard is a publisher. Konami is not a publisher. Konami is a developer. Sony, in this sense, if they were to buy Konami as a developer, Sony would then essentially be the publisher of the Konami-developed game. So that's how that all shapes up, and it's not nowhere near (laughs) the same comparison. It's apples and oranges, in my opinion, to try to compare Sony potentially purchasing Konami to Microsoft purchasing Bethesda and attempting to purchase Activision Blizzard. Very, very different. And it just makes more sense to me if it were PlayStation to buy them because, again, as I have already talked about, the relationship, the tenure that they've had together over all these decades, it just kind of feels right. It's like, okay, just like if Xbox were to say buy Sega, honestly, I would feel kind of okay with that because of their relationship they had in developing the networking for the Sega Dreamcast. The fact that Microsoft said the Xbox was what they considered at the time a spiritual successor to the Dreamcast. And they just had a good relationship with Sega over the years. So for whatever reason, in my mind, Sega feels like an Xbox brand in a sense, even though Sega has had exclusive games like the Yakuza series used to be exclusive to PlayStation and so on and so forth. I get it. But in my mind, it just it feels right, if that makes sense. So a lot to really take in and think about and talk about when it comes to this Konami Sony topic. And it was one that I was very excited to get to and talk about this week. So I hope you've enjoyed my content coverage. Now let's open up my captain's log and see what games I've been playing. Gamers, in last week's Captain's Quarters episode, I last left you in my progress in Star Wars Jedi Survivor, where I was just about to finish up my exploration of the planet of Kobo. Now, this past week, I did drop another 11 hours into my experience, and I am now sitting at a pretty nice 26 hours in the game so far. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, you know that I was still on Kobo, spent the majority of my time, all but three hours worth, on Kobo. Well, rest assured, that 26 hours is not still all Kobo. I did leave Kobo, but before I get to the point that I left, let me just say and kind of go in the order of my progression here. I started out where I left off last week, and that was I just had this amazing story progression and introduction of certain characters and Oh man, I was just on on this euphoric feeling of lore and discovery and learning new things about just this time period of Star Wars. So at this point, you have the option essentially to go back to the Mantis, your ship, and leave Kobo to go to the next planet, which ends up being the planet of Jetta. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll know exactly what Jetta is. There's a lot of very cool backstory as far as the Jedi or are concerned that happened on Jedha. There's some very important battles that took place there. Just a lot of lore there. So when I found out that it was Jedha that I was supposed to go to next, I was actually pretty stoked. So before I did that, though, obviously I want to check and make sure that everything on Kobo has been tidied up and 
you know, a nice little bow and everything is done that I can possibly do at this point in the game. Obviously, I realize there's going to be a lot of areas and different accessibilities that are not available to me at the time because I don't have certain weapons or items or abilities that require me to use those to get further progression in certain areas. So I did go around and I'll just say that one thing I haven't really mentioned and talked about is there is a garden on top of the roof of the cantina. And this cantina, this roof, it has a big plot for you to plant seeds that you find throughout your exploration. These seeds are kind of like collectibles. You'll see little fireflies kind of floating around certain bushes and plants and things like that out in your exploration. And when you chop them down with your lightsaber, you can pick up some seeds that drop from it and then go back to the rooftop garden and plant your own plants. And there's really nothing that I've seen so far that it does for you outside of just kind of having an aesthetic of the garden on top of the rooftop. And it looks like there are going to be further unlockable rooftop gardens that you can do, but they're covered in vines right now. So I'm sure that's just a matter of story progression and you unlock the second garden and the third garden, so on and so forth. But that is one thing that I did not mention last time that I had been doing and realized kind of later into my exploration of Kobo that, oh, that's how you get the seeds. I didn't really pick up on there being anything special about the fireflies initially. And it kind of happened by accident. I'm sitting there fighting some enemies and chop down one of the bushes and bloop, it kind of cow sucks up these seeds and there they are. I was like, okay, all right. Well, now I know what I'm looking for because on the collectible tracker on the map, it shows, you know, the seed count and I'm sitting there at zero out of six or zero out of five. And I'm like, where are these seeds at? Well, there they are. So a little free tip for you there. But it wasn't just that. It was kind of setting up my garden, having BD plant all these seeds because he has fun doing that. He's the one that actually plants them for you. You get to choose the plot and the location that you want them to. You have small, medium, and larger seeds or locations that you are required to use for the seeds. Some of them may take up one to three slots, depending on the size of the plant when it's fully grown. So outside of seed collecting, there were some other rumors or side quests that I could take care of throughout the course of Kobo and its different landscapes. I explored every other landscape that was available to me that I saw. There was a fun side quest where you actually ride the tusk of this massive creature in the middle of the map and you use that to gain access to a higher area. There are different creatures that you can uh, ride throughout the world and I had fun really just kind of exploring the world in a different way with those mountable creatures because with these guys you actually get almost like a triple jump because you can jump with the creature that already is higher than what cow's jump would be and then do a double jump move tapping the jump button the second time and it kind of is like a springboard in the middle of the air for cow to get to an even higher location so that was pretty cool exploring kobo on the back of a mount and then there was just a few other things I wanted to tidy up in the cantina. Anytime you go back to the cantina, there's just so much to do there. There's always new conversations and new patrons that you can talk to that show up in between your travels back and forth in the cantina. And I also love checking in with Scuba Steve, which is the uh, character that you interact with who goes and dives in the water in certain spots and brings back rare, valuable fish for you to put in the tank there at the cantina. That's a cool little side mini game. You got the data disc that you can trade into Z, the droid from the High Republic era upstairs. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff you can do there in the cantina. So I enjoyed my time kind of touching base with everybody in there before I left. And then I finally made my way to Jeddah. 
And when I got there, honestly, I had never visually really known or seen what Jetta was supposed to really look like. So I was kind of surprised when I first got there because it was very much the desert canyon type location that somewhat was a part of my description of Kobo. And let me just tell you, this is very different than Kobo. Kobo had a lot of green and a lot of nice rivers and ponds and turquoise springs and things like that. There is some canyon area, sure, but this is straight up desert <laughs> and canyon environment. But it still looks great. It's got a lot of great, again, statues and lore that just are very ancient in the time of where this game is being set. And you just know there's this really rich history of things that in the past happened here. And for me, the kind of person I am, just as a Star Wars fan, a gamer, I want to know all of that history. Like, I want to explore ad nauseum to find out exactly what happened here and what all the context is behind what I'm looking at. So I will say, as I explored, there are some cool new things that you could do as Cal in this area. There is a sand creature that was pretty interesting, I'll say, that you had to kind of stay away from and hop from, stay out of the sand, basically. It kind of reminded me of the movie Tremors, if you guys have ever seen that movie from back in the day, or any of those movies. There was multiple movies, a TV show, but the, the ground rumbles, you see the sand moving up and down in the direction that it's coming from, and you kind of have to get to a, a cement platform or just stay off of the sand or else you're, you're going to get eaten, <laughs> and that's no fun. So going through this initial section, the objective was to meet this uh, escort, we'll say, and I'm not going to go into details of who the escort was or why or where I'm getting escorted to. Let's just say that I am there to meet up with a certain character and they have sent an escort to meet up with Cal and BD and escort them to this person's location. Well, ultimately, I get through some Imperial uh, presence that is on Jetta. Of course, you got to have the Imperial presence. And there's also outside of this massive scorpion creature that's underneath the ground chasing you if you step on the sand. There's also some interesting fauna here as well that I've seen so far and some kind of just uh, wolf-like creatures is, I guess, kind of like a, like hairless wolves. But bottom line is I get through the Imperials, I get to where I'm meeting the escort, and let me just say I was massively, massively excited to see who the escort was. And then you get to a team-up section with this escort, and you play through a good portion, this, this next portion of Jetta with the escort. And it was really cool because then finally the game introduces the ability or shows you that, hey, when you have a second partner with you, you can give them commands. So there is this partner, for instance, you get into a lot of battles with stormtroopers along the way and you can have them, you can target specific stormtroopers, give the command, and this character will actually bind the stormtrooper or stormtroopers if there's multiple troopers near where the radius is of their ability. And it will bind them there in place for a few seconds and allow you to just come up and tear them up with lightsabers or however you want to do it. So that was a lot of fun. And as you continue to go through, there was a lot of platforming in this section, and I, I really did enjoy that. I love the platforming in this game between the wall running and the double jumping and the scaling the cliffs with the vines or whether it's metal grates and they're just kind of monkey barring across big open chasms as well with, the, again, the metal gratings or vines, whatever the, the location is that you have to hold on to as cow to, to get across to the next area. So that was a lot of fun. And then when I finally got to the base that I was being escorted to, before I got to it, there was this massive 
storm, a sandstorm that was coming. And we had a, a very awesome story moment that I won't go into again. But there was a great story moment that happened during this sequence. And I absolutely loved it. I can't wait to see where the different story beats that came from this hopefully continue to go throughout the story as it progresses. But past that, we get to the base where the objective is and meet up with the person who we were there to meet in the first place. And this base is pretty cool. It's multi-leveled. It's got a lot of really cool archival stuff for Jedi. Uh, there is other basic stuff there. I love what Respawn, the developer, has done with it. It seems like every planet has a, a specific character that sells or certain specific items they will trade, I should say, not sell, but they will trade you for that planet's specific collectible. So in this planet, it is actually scrolls, like ancient scrolls that have Jedi lore that unfortunately you can't read, but you use them as currency to trade in for unique items and paint jobs at this person's store. And it's the same with Z on Kobo, how you trade the High Republic data disks to her for different unique items. So I love the fact that every planet is is just kind of its own thing, its own collectibles, its own shops, its own unique items on display and on hand. So there's just so many cool things going on here. So once I got the next objective after talking to the the many different characters that were a lot of them just awesome uh, to see again in this setting. So after finding out what my next objective is, there's actually two optional objectives. It's one of those things where you have a decision to go either here or to go there. And I won't say where the there is, but let's just say the option that I chose was to go back to Kobo. And for perspective, when I left Kobo to come to Jeddah, the map had now said that I was 47% complete as far as doing everything on the planet. So I still had half the planet basically to, to explore. And there was a decent amount of areas that I saw that were inaccessible when I was trying to look at everything before I left the first time. So I was like, you know what? I'm now going to get a chance to go to explore these previously un inexplorable, unexplorable areas. And I'm kind of excited about that because not only... In that in and of itself, the fact that it's the rest or at least a portion of the areas that I couldn't explore before that I want to, but it's also the description that was given to me where it's this ancient temple that you're a ruin that you're supposed to go to and explore and search for specific information on just some things that are going on within the story of the game. And I am very interested. I'm, I'm interested in both locations. Let me just say that. But this one really just kind of stood out to me and was like, this is where I want to go. So I made my way back to Kobo, and when I got there, I obviously could not help but go to the cantina and check in with everybody there. I actually picked up a couple of rumors while I was around that area of the cantina, and then I made my way back out into the world of Kobo and went to where the beacon was for me to continue to progress in this newly accessible area. And again, it's a lot of fun. There are different creatures that you can grab onto their feet and hang from them, and they will, you can basically glide. They will jump off, you jump off a cliff, grab onto their feet, and Cal will be escorted essentially across the, these massive chasms. And in this specific area, there are actually like geysers, like air geysers or uh, updrafts of air and wind that will lift you higher and keep you sustained in the air for longer periods of time. And so you had to kind of use that those to get across these different areas. There were stop-offs at different, you know, little mini islands, if you will, that were in the air. And 
uh, different puzzles that you had to explore and go through and find out how to figure out the basically what uh, the main puzzle function that I've seen so far in the game where you utilize the force to pick up, say, this massive silver metallic ball and relocate it to a different device that will shoot out this purple energy beam that allows you to destroy certain things, a certain vine looking coating in the area that may be blocking your path forward. So when you get to a certain point after doing this for a few times, you finally get a new ability for BD-1. And this ability, it allows him to basically shoot out what is called as Kobo Spray. And it's this like almost oily, milky coating that if you spray it into where these energy beams that I talked about are shining onto, it creates this crystalline surface. And then you can kind of guide that to where this other residual material is that you need to go away so you can progress further. And what it does, it kind of eats that material away so it clears the path for you. And so it was essentially me doing that in a few different areas. And now areas that I maybe passed getting to this point where the new ability was that weren't previously accessible, I could now get past them. So it was things like that that I was doing and a couple of you know, enemy encounters here, there. The biggest thing, speaking about enemy encounters that I would say that I've experienced this past week that was new as far as uh, combat is concerned is I did learn a new stance, a lightsaber stance. And this one is the blaster stance. And I got to tell you, gamers, it was the one that I was most intrigued by and interested in checking out when I first heard about it. The fact that there were blasters in this game and that Cal as a Jedi would be using a blaster. And I'm like, well... As far as Star Wars is concerned, it's kind of odd because it's always been kind of frowned upon by Jedi to use blasters. But, oh, well, you know, from a gameplay perspective, we'll see what they got going on here. So I was kind of excited to see how it shaped up. I got to tell you, gamers, unfortunately, I was a bit disappointed with it because so far there really hasn't been much to it. Obviously, you're kind of limited with your lightsaber abilities because you have the lightsaber in one hand, the blaster in the other hand. There is limited ammo and it does refill but you can do a charge shot, you can do rapid fire. Just in general, there's not really a whole lot that impresses me about it so far. I, I do like the long range option, but I was doing kind of just fine, in my opinion, by using my lightsaber throw ability to, for a long range option recently. So, so far, I've been kind of underwhelmed, unfortunately, with the blaster lightsaber stance. Hopefully as time progresses and the more I use it, maybe I'll figure out how the right way to use it is. Maybe I'm not doing it the right way. But so far, that is where I'm at in Star Wars Jedi Survivor. A massive amount of progress this past week to share with you. I cannot express how much I am absolutely loving this game. When I'm not playing it, I'm wanting to continue playing it. And when I am playing it, I'm just in pure bliss. So that was this week's Captain's Log. Now, out of all that gaming bliss, let's see what my highlight of the week was. Gamers, this past week and all that I did in Star Wars Jedi Survivor to find and narrow down one specific highlight, one moment that really stood out to me, it was kind of tough because, man, I'm just enjoying everything that much. But if I had to isolate one specific portion of my play sessions it was just like really it stands out above the rest i'd have to say it would be my first hours on jetta you know i said aesthetically and visually when i first got there it, it, i almost want to say it was disappointing in a way for me because i was expecting i really don't know what i was expecting a lush environment or something along those lines but i definitely wasn't expecting the desert that i got 
And as I explored, though, immediately I was drawn into what was there. You see these old, broken-down, buried temples that are, you know, half buried in the sands, and the different markings that are all over the different walls and pillars and different things like that. You see the remnants of a civilization that used to be there. You see this massive statue carved out of a cliffside that it looks like, as Cal even says, it looks like uh, Master Fisto, Kit Fisto, who was one of the Jedi Council members. If you had seen the prequel movies, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. And it was a, a, a oh, it was just awesome exploring this area. And as I got to the base, it, again, I told you earlier about the amazing story sequence that happened in between the storm. There are some other things that just a journey across the desert really drew me in. And then when I was exploring the base, just thinking about the lore that was available and the archives that the Jedi were trying to build in this area, and then seeing the northern desert. I picked up a rumor while I was there in this base, and it asked me to go check out some ruins in the northern desert because uh, some things are going on out there that are kind of creepy. People are talking about hearing voices and seeing ghosts. A lot of really cool stuff that I cannot wait to check out. Unfortunately, at this point in the game, I wasn't able to get access to it. You have to progress the story a bit further before you can go out there. But looking out over the desert to see in the distance where this place is that I'm supposed to go, it's just got me really excited. And that is one of many reasons why, when I'm not playing this game, I cannot wait to get back to it. So that was my highlight of the week. Now let's go open up a chest of buried treasure gaming tips for you that I have in Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Gamers, this week my tip for you is going to come back on Kobo when you come back to it from Jeddah. And, you know, I was talking about earlier how you're using the flying creatures to use the updrafts to gain access to different areas and progress further and higher in the spires section of the map. So when you get to a certain point, it's the last platform that you're going to get to that's going to have a energy console that you're going to have to use and guide to get rid of some of that residual material I was talking about earlier that is blocking the last updraft geyser. So when you get here, you see the big opening that's going into this room that you can tell has what looks to be one of those orbs that I was talking about earlier that's used for this kind of puzzle. Well, when you go around the corner and you go in through a different entrance, you get into this room eventually and you're going to see on the other side of a wall and through some bars, you're going to see that orb sitting there, but you don't have immediate access to it. Well, then you eventually see that there is a path that leads you back behind it. So you go back there, follow the path to the orb. Well, once you remove the orb from the platform, the door that was the access that you came into that tunnel by shuts. So now you have to keep that door open so you can leave with the orb. Well, when you go back out into that main room, look up top and on your right, if you're facing the entrance to that tunnel where the orb is, there is a massive square block. <laughs> you want to use the force to pull that down to you and situate it just below where the door is going to drop down and then go grab the orb and that will keep the door open for you to come back out into the main room. Once you get back out into that main room, then you're going to place the orb on the pedestal 
at which point it's going to shine into the next room. Well, you need it to be close and shine into and stop in the main room that you're in. In order to do this, it took me a minute to figure it out. Don't know why, but ultimately, so you don't waste the time that I did, actually move that massive cube and put it in front of the energy force that's going forward. And the cube will block it. And then you can use the different Kobo spray from BD1 and spread it out towards where that residual material is. And it will eat away and destroy it, therefore opening up the entrance that you first came to on the cliff outside, allowing you to bring that orb with you and put it on the final console to then use and get rid of the residual residue that's on that last geyser. So hopefully that'll help you out and save you some time. Now let's go check out this week's Captain's Decree. Gamers, for this week's Captain's Decree, given the topic of the rumor of Sony potentially acquiring Konami. It got me thinking. It's like, you know what? These franchises that Konami is best known for, they're really from the PlayStation 1 era where we got the popularity and the increased recognition from them. So what other companies during that era of gaming that were kind of synonymous with Sony would make sense if Sony were to potentially seek out more developers to purchase? Well, I think the first obvious one here is Capcom. Capcom, I mean, back in the day, PlayStation 1, they had the Dino Crisis series, which I'm still waiting for a remake, a current-gen remake of that. Obviously, Resident Evil. You have Street Fighter, Mega Man. I mean, there's so many different franchises that are massively successful and well-known from Capcom. And over the years, PlayStation and Capcom have always had a great relationship. I will say for a, a few years there, there was a little oddity when it comes to Code Veronica being initially exclusive to Dreamcast and then the Nintendo GameCube deal that Capcom did where the original Resident Evil remake, Resident Evil 4, and Resident Evil 0 were all timed exclusives to the GameCube. So outside of that, I feel like there's always been just kind of a a PlayStation Capcom relationship that makes sense. They've always had that kind of tight bond with each other and support. So I feel like Capcom would be kind of an obvious choice and not one that I would be upset with. I think it kind of makes sense. There's one other developer that I also feel would make perfect sense. And I would honestly say I wouldn't be mad at it if it happened. That developer is Square Enix. I mean, obviously, back in the day, if it wasn't for PlayStation and the willingness to go to a disc format as opposed to cartridge on the Nintendo 64 at the time, Final Fantasy may not be what we know it today. It may not even exist anymore. I don't know if you know the details behind the story there, but that's a conversation for a different day to go into the details of it. But let's just say that because of PlayStation going to the disc format and Sony willing to support Square Enix and the development of Final Fantasy VII... I mean, honestly, RPGs and the Western market and their love of RPGs and JRPGs may not be what it is today if it wasn't for that initial partnership between Square, at the time, Squaresoft and Sony. So, obviously, we look to current day. Final Fantasy 16, the next game in the series, is currently exclusive just to PlayStation 5. Sure, the developer Square Enix is saying maybe they would release it on PC at some point. 
but they don't know. That's not even what is on their radar right now. It's all about the PS5 release. And let's not even get to a point where we're talking, is it coming to Xbox or not? Because look at Final Fantasy VII Remake. That was supposed to be a timed exclusive on PS4, come to PS5 a year later. Obviously, I know COVID happened and potentially messed that whole process up. But at the end of the day, we're years later, we haven't heard anything else from it. It's probably not going to happen. And when the next mainline entry in the series of Final Fantasy 16 is announced as exclusive to PS5, I, I kind of think that the writing's on the wall there. So it's not just the Final Fantasy series. I mean, there's a lot of other series that Square Enix is known for and that they could bring back and do on the PlayStation. But there are games, that kind of game and genre that Square Enix does, I feel like fits perfect within that PlayStation family. So Capcom and Square Enix, I think would be perfect fits to fall under that umbrella. And I would not be mad in the least bit if they were announced as the next developers that Sony were to potentially purchase. That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by reaching out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. You can also find me on social media on Instagram at lostatseagaming, as well as on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing. <laughs>